settings are deleted, hell breaks loose. The B-cell duplicates rapidly and starts producing millions of little weapons. They work so hard that they were literally done from exhaustion very fast. Here, LT started play another important role. They stimulate the hard-working factories and tell them, don't die yet, we still need you. Keep going. This also ensures that the factories die as the infection is over so the body doesn't waste energy or hurt itself. But what is produced by the B-cells? You've heard of them, of course. Antibodies. Little proteins that are engineered to bond to the surface of the specific intruder. There are even different kinds of antibodies that have slightly different jobs. The help T-cells tell the plasma cells which type is needed the most in this particular invasion. Millions of them flood above and saturate the body. Meanwhile, at the site of infection, the situation is getting dire. The intruders have multiplied in number and start hurting the body. Guard and attack cells fight hard, but also die in the process. Help T-cells support them by ordering them to be more aggressive and to stay alive longer. But without help, they can't overwhelm the bacteria. But now the second line of defense arrives. Millions of antibodies flood the battlefield and disable lots of the intruders, rendering them helpless or killing them in the process. They also stop the bacteria and make them an easy target. Their back is built to connect to killer cells, so they can connect and kill the enemy more easily. Macrophages are especially good at learning up bacteria which antibodies have attached to. Now, the balance shifts. In a team effort, the infection is wiped out. At this point, millions of body cells have already died. No big deal, the losses are quickly replenished. Most immune cells are now useless, and without the constant signals, they commit suicide, so as not to waste any resources. But some stay behind, the memory cells. If this enemy is encountered ever again in the future, they will be ready for it, and probably kill it before you even notice. This is a very, very simplified explanation of parts of the immune system at work. Can you imagine how complex this system is? Even at this level, but we ignore so many players in the world of chemistry. Life is awfully complicated, but if we take the time to understand it, we always encounter endless wonders and great beauty. Okay. So why would I show you a video on the human immune system on a Sunday night? Well, um, first, I always loved it when the teacher would start class by saying well, we get to watch a video today. So I got to live that little dream. That's awesome. Um, but more importantly, I am intensely interested in the complexity of the human body. Uh, I, I love that the complexity can appear very simple. Uh, you know, I love that the complexity existed long before we had any scientific names attached to it. I love that the deeper that we go into creation, the more that we find out, the more detail and the more depth, and the depth seems nearly infinite. If you go to Job and, and look at, I think it's like 38 through 40, 41, when God is, is talking to Job and, he's, and he says, where were you? when I did this? Where were you when I created this animal? Where were you when I did this? And this is a really short summary, a superficial list of creation. And you could take one item from that list and spend lifetime after lifetime after lifetime digging into its depth and you still would not be satisfied by the knowledge that it contains. God cannot help but be beautiful 
and wise in all of the things that he does and that he designs. Finally, that depth leads me to this notion that there are some godly principles that are echoed throughout every level of creation, whether it's at the microscopic level, whether it's it's at the personal level, whether it's at the mental level, whether it's at the universal level, there are some principles that are pervasive that God has authored. So consider how much is going on in our body, which is really incredible, when you get a scratch on your finger. Now, you can make some analogies here. What, what happens if one of those components decides not to do its job, decides not to communicate, or has a defect, or, or even decides to rebel? And so I see this, this principle that when, when systems are in harmony, when harmony is achieved and that harmony is maintained, that system can be more powerful together than the sum of its component parts. You've heard that adage, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. But it takes harmony in order to achieve this. Paul often referred to the the church as the body of Christ. We're going to take a look at some of those analogies tonight. And for tonight's discussion, when I say body, I'm mostly thinking about Avon. Some of these can obviously be be applied at the universal uh, level, and I think sometimes he was referring to the universal body of Christ. But tonight I want to talk about Avon and the body here. Now, my goal is not necessarily to convince you that harmony is essential. I believe it is, and we will kind of touch on that uh, a little bit tonight. But the motivation for this largely stems from a couple of takeaways for me personally in our study of the book of Romans, where Paul kind of argues and does a really great job of convincing me of not only how important harmony and working together in cooperation is, but how powerful it can be. Mostly when you prepare for something like this, it's meant to instruct and to teach. And obviously I'm going to try to do that. But really my focus tonight is to delight in the profoundness that we see what happens to something when all of the parts are working together. I realize that this may be a little similar to the talk that was given, I think, last week during the finances study. I was not there. So any any similarities are purely coincidental. And I bet you guys didn't watch a very cool video on the human means system. In our study of Romans, um, we recognize that Paul is teaching the Jews and the Gentiles that the the differences, the perceived differences that exist among them, they were superficial to the bond that they had by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. They were superficial to that grace. He also uh, was trying to convince them that trying to be justified by the law was a foolhardy endeavor. In chapter 8, he talks about the fact that Christ, uh, we are set free from the law of sin and death because of of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Then we have that beautiful discourse on how nothing can separate us 
from the love of God. It will always be available to us should we desire it. And then, of course, in 9 and 10, 11, we talked a little bit about this this morning. Paul kind of does this sidebar, this tangential conversation geared primarily at the Israelites. And he builds an argument that just because you're a Jew doesn't automatically mean that you're saved. God chose Abraham because he has a right to choose whatever he wants. And he didn't look down and go, okay, the nation of Israel is by far the most faithful and and that kind of... No, he chose because he gets to choose. And now the Gentiles have been chosen. And now we have a situation where two very, very different groups of people have to work together. And they have to uh, recognize Christ as the direction of their progress. He states that the hearts of Israel will be somewhat hardened for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles had come. And how even in this, God was to be glorified because God can take anything, even the hardening of someone's heart, and make it beneficial to his plan. I loved that. And as we got to that part in in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, Paul is so eloquent when he talks about his conclusion in the idea that God can take what we consider broken and mend them, but not only mend them, make them better than they were ever before. So he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And my heart did an amen when I read that. Because this is really what we're doing tonight. As we look at how God ordered things. And he makes this a conclusion that... If you recognize this and you understand this, that God can take broken things and repair them better than they ever were, then that means you need to live your life in a sacrificial way. And in living a sacrificial life, that is part of your worship to God. So then, as he continues, he gives an analogy to those meeting at Rome of the, uh, of the body, the human body. And this is in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that, are, uh, that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, service, and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So we see this incredible notion 
of finding your purpose in serving the Lord and leaning into it, giving all your energy to that. And this idea of being members one of another, you might be reading this and you go, man, I remember this person. Every interaction with them was pleasant. They gave so much grace. I remember that teacher, a really good teacher. And I remember this person that was always merciful. And when I needed mercy, they gave me mercy. And when I recognized someone needed to be inspired or even potentially rebuked in exhortation, I did that. You see that idea of individually being members of one another is really quite incredible. And so he describes how all of these things are being knit together. So you may ask a logical question, well, what is my purpose? What is my strength? As I look to find what, what I am good at and what I can be effective here at Avon, what is that? I don't have a short answer for that. But I can tell you one thing that I've learned is that the more people I connect to and the more people I talk to, the more I learn about myself. Isn't that crazy? Why do you think that is? Because it's an echo, a godly principle that we find in everything. Everything that we know is a collection of things depending on other things, depending on other things, depending on other things. And the human mind and the personality and the perspective, they cannot be well solidified in isolation, just like the body cannot grow well in isolation, nor can the church flourish in isolation. And this led me to kind of a mental exercise. And think back, maybe even to kindergarten, what was the one thing that you heard a lot of that your teacher, your parent, your preacher, what rule do you remember the most? For me, it was, you're not supposed to be mean to people. I know that's an oversimplification, but all I remember is don't be mean to your brother, don't be mean to your sister, don't be mean to your classmate, don't be, you know, just like, don't be mean. That's a very, very early rule that I remember. Why is that wrong? What is wrong about that? What makes that evil? Why am I not supposed to do that? Well, because someone in authority told me I shouldn't be mean to people, I should be nice to people. So let's draw that out a little bit. Let's say that you're mean to someone. You, you hit them, or you took something, or you did something, and they no longer trust you. And that relationship over time begins to crumble a little bit. If that trust is not repaired, that relationship may just deteriorate, fall apart. Well, that's not great. Well, now what happens if many of our relationships start to fall apart? What happens to a neighborhood? What happens to a community? What happens to a church, a city, a state, a nation? when relationships just don't hold. Now, take man out of it, totally. What happens if the weather system doesn't want to participate with the agricultural system? Well, you know that's not going to happen because they don't really have a free will, and that's the order that God set up. And what this made me think was that sin 
wasn't, was no longer just about someone in authority telling me not to do something. Sin became this thing where I was disrupting the order of creation that God had set. Maybe a small thing, but sin, missing the mark, isn't simply your parents telling you not to do something. You're completely undermining the whole thing when you miss the mark. And so you start seeing sin as these ripples of disruption to the order that God put in place. To the beauty that God designed all of us with in mind. Consider this maybe to be the reason for the concept of sacrifice. When you offered a sacrifice, did it reverse what happened? Did it like suddenly reverse time and everything that had happened had no longer happened? No. It was this concept that when you undermine the order, something has to pay. There will always be consequences. And so that's why when I got to chapter 14 in Romans, I was really struck by something. And, uh, you know, in 13, he talks about submitting to authority. And he's been working all of these chapters to kind of convince these people that, that uh, their bond is through Christ, through faith in Christ, by the grace of God. And then he gets to 14, and 14 took on a new meaning to me again. It's this incredibly unifying chapter. And in verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats, eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And this struck me as I think about all of the times that the Spirit and Jesus and the Apostles talk about all evil starts where? It starts in your heart, at the very center of who you are. Evil starts way down, hidden deep inside of a person. And if it's given enough time and enough energy and enough daylight, it blooms into behavior, evil behavior. And so I looked at this and I understood that unity of a group also starts in the hearts of individual participants. And this is why the Spirit and Paul and Jesus, they spend so much time addressing the condition of the heart, the unseen you, right? This is why putting people first, even mentally, is critical to that harmony. It's why you're supposed to outdo one another with honor and to put others before yourself. This is what makes the recent confessions we've seen so beautiful and so powerful. You think the world is going to expose its hidden self? You think the world is going to pursue reconciliation? No. It can't afford the pride. It can't afford the vulnerability. 
so we close ourselves off, we isolate ourselves because of our pride, and we convince ourselves that it's better off if we're alone, if we're isolated. I have been guilty of putting mental walls up, starting deep down in your heart where you can smile at a person, but you kind of discard their relationship because maybe they have some goofy political views or something like that. You think it's a small, private thing that only exists in your mind, but the reality is that's where the system starts to lag. That's where the order starts to slowly erode, starts to break down. No, in Jesus' kingdom, we strive for connection. We pursue it even at the cost of our vulnerability, even at the cost of our fragile pride, because in Jesus' kingdom, systems in harmony are far more powerful than their component parts. And I love the thought Love covers a multitude of sins. It's really, really incredible. In the same way that Ryan had talked about Jesus turning entropy right on its head, we have this idea that love can reverse a lot of disorder, a lot of chaos. So this is why Paul spends so much time trying to convince Rome that the group will benefit exponentially if a couple of people's desires are, are calibrated properly. And then Paul again describes the body in 1 Corinthians 12 with an emphasis on the cooperation of the parts. So in, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and 21, he says that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. One member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We see this really cool notion that God specifically designed the human body with little bits of imbalance, little bits of diversity. And Paul says he did this to avoid division. Only God can introduce imbalance to the benefit of the whole structure. And so sometimes, to kind of illustrate this a little bit, sometimes as you're kind of trying to figure out where your strengths are and where you can be useful and purposeful, you say, well, that person over there, man, they've got a lot more talents than I do. And what does that do to the relationship? Or you might think you got a lot more talents than that person sitting over there, and what does that do to the relationship? And that's an individualistic view. And Paul is saying that all of the imbalances, all of those differences at the individual level, they are completely overshadowed. They're completely outweighed by the structure as a whole. And so when you look in at the body and there's all these differences that God has designed in and these slight imbalances, and then you take a step back and you look at the whole thing, all of that is outweighed and overshadowed by the power and the majesty 
of the complete unit. I've recently been uh, reading the, the, the book of Titus, and um, Paul says that he left Titus in Crete so that he could finish doing the things that still needed to be done and so that you could appoint elders in every town. I, I did not research how many churches were, were kind of in Crete. And Titus is normally the book, in my mind, that you go to for the qualifications of an elder. Right? Like that seems to be, uh, at least in my mind, uh, what Titus was known for. But notice this from chapter 1. There are many people who refuse to cooperate, who talk about worthless things and lead others into the wrong way, mainly those who insist on circumcision to be saved. These people must be stopped because they are upsetting whole families by teaching things they should not teach, which they do to get rich by cheating people. Even one of their own prophets said, Prudence are always liars, evil animals, and lazy people who do nothing but eat. The words that prophet said are true. So firmly tell the, those people they are wrong so that they may become strong in the faith. Some, some harsh words. And if you go and you look up where that quote comes from, I'll just very quickly read. That quote comes from Epimenides of Gnosis, a 7th century B.C. poet, prophet, and native Cretan who characterized his own people as liars. Epimenides was not the only one to describe Cretans in this way. Other ancient writers and philosophers concurred. And Paul's assessment served to confirm uh, the Cretans' characters to be generally evil. The Roman poet Ovid referred to Crete as Mendax Creta, or Lion Crete. The Greeks used the verb Cretize as a synonym for lie. All people are guilty of lying at one time or another, but not all are habitual liars as it seems the ancient Cretans were. Lying seems to have been a governing vice among them. They were not guilty of it in certain specific instances, but always. They were, in the vernacular of psychologists, compulsive liars. Those who lie even when there is no external motivation to do so. So Crete was an island of compulsive liars. And it gave me a, a new appreciation for the job that Titus had before him. I need you to take care of some things, Titus. And you need to appoint elders in every town. Paul describes some of the things that he should um, tell the people and the, and the ways in which they should behave. Older men, they need to be self-controlled and it'd be serious and wise, strong in faith, love, and patience. The older women, they need to have holy or pure behavior. They shouldn't gossip and they shouldn't become drunk. The young women need to love their husbands and children, be wise and pure, good workers at home, be kind, and yielding to their husbands. The young men, they need to be wise. And when I've read these instructions in the past, I'm like, yeah, that's a list of good qualities that you should have, right? Like, yeah. I know that, I fit into that category, and that's kind of... But then I realized what these churches were up against. What did it take to become an influencing body on an island of compulsive liars? How, did you, how would you combat this? How do you become a, a force to influence the environment around you? Find your purpose. And you dig in. 
you lean in and you start to see all of these pieces like a puzzle slowly clicking together to create this overall visual. And I love how Paul kind of summarizes this in Titus, the second chapter. It's kind of a lengthy reading, but it's Titus 2.11 through chapter 3 and verse 8. That is the way that we should live. Because God's grace that can save everyone has come. It teaches us not to live against God, nor to do the evil things the world wants to do. Instead, that grace teaches us to live in the present age in a wise and right way. And in a way that shows we serve God. We should live like that while we wait for our great hope and the coming of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us so he might pay the price to free us from all evil and make us pure people who belong only to him. People who are always wanting to do good deeds. Say these things and encourage the people and tell them what is wrong in their lives with all authority. Don't let anyone treat you as if you were unimportant. Remind the believers to yield to the authority of rulers and government leaders, to obey, to be ready to do good, to speak no evil about anyone, to live in peace, and to be gentle and polite to all people. In the past, we were also foolish. We did not obey. We were wrong, and we were slaves to many things our bodies wanted and enjoyed. We spent our lives doing evil and being jealous. People hated us, and we hated people. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior was shown, He saved us because of His mercy. It was not because of good deeds we did to be right with Him. He saved us through the washing, made us new people through the Holy Spirit. God poured out richly upon us that Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. Being made right with God by His grace, we could have the hope of receiving the life that never ends. This teaching is true, and I want you to be sure the people understand these things. Then those who believe in God will be careful to use their lives for doing good. These things are good and will help everyone. These last two lines are really what kind of stuck out to me in this letter using our lives for doing good. And when we do that, it helps everyone. That is living our lives sacrificially. When we live sacrificially, it's meant to help those around us. So what are we here at Avon? How have we influenced the environment around us? And I say this in praise because I think Avon does a fantastic job. And it's another way in which I kind of delight in the profoundness of God's design. People here are so desperate to give that they'll take from their life savings. People here are so desperate to reconcile that they'll expose conditions in their heart that may not have even been visible to the outside observer. People here are so desperate for the truth of the Spirit that they'll wrestle with scriptures and ideas and occasionally one another. There's another reference to the body and its harmony in Ephesians 4. It's where Paul talks about 
One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. I love that. God is pervasive throughout everything. Paul talks about a variety of gifts that were given to, quote, make the body of Christ stronger. And in verse 13, he says, This work must continue until we are all joined together in the same faith. And in the same knowledge of the Son of God, we must become like a mature person, growing until we become like Christ and have his perfection. I love this because it it highlights the ultimate goal. This is the profoundness that we can delight in. Ultimately, we're trying to be like Christ. Everyone here is trying and striving towards being like Christ And this is how things look in Jesus' kingdom. So why does it matter whether I'm close to that person or mentally I've written off that person or I don't pursue reconciliation or connection? Why does that matter? And he answers by saying, then we will no longer be babies. We will not be tossed about like a ship that the waves carry one way and then another. We will not be influenced by every new teaching we hear from people who are trying to fool us. They make plans and try any kind of trick to fool people into following the wrong path. No. Speaking the truth with love, we will grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head. The whole body depends on Christ, and all the parts of the body are joined and held together. Each part does its own work to make the whole body grow and be strong with love. We are stronger together in a way that only God can design. Thank you for listening patiently tonight. Talked a lot about harmony and systems and order, but the ultimate destination is to become more like Christ. I want that. I think that you want that. And I want to lean in to whatever strength I have to help you get there. And I hope you do the same for me. If you have any need tonight, we'd ask that you come as we stand in the